these last four, this last tetrad, <coughs> starts with the assumption that you've got a fairly good basis in concentration. And now you can focus more directly on the issues of insight. Step number 13, I'll breathe in and out, focusing on inconstancy. <coughs> As I said earlier, the, this is the, word, the Pali word here is anicca, which is many times translated as impermanent or impermanence. The reason I've translated inconstancy here is that it's the opposite of a word, nicca, which, which most clearly means constant, something you do constantly, something that's reliable, steady. And you begin, and here you focus on inconstancy. You can focus on the inconstancy of form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, or consciousness. Also, as I said earlier, that these are the themes of inconstant, stressful, and not self are in the commentaries. They're called the three characteristics. But in the canon, they're used only in reference to the word sanya, which means perception. You perceive things as inconstant, stressful, or not self. Or you do this process of focusing on that theme as your theme of meditation. The Pali word here is anupasana. The word anu means to follow. You look at something, you follow it along. You keep track of it, basically. So this is the theme you want to keep track of, which is how inconstant your experiences are. And included in this is the theme of if it's inconstant, it's going to be stressful, and if it's stressful, it's going to be not self. This becomes the theme of your meditation, each time you breathe in, each time you breathe out. Now, I've heard some people say you can, you can focus on this right away. You notice how your breath changes, and that's inconstancy. It doesn't really hit you until the mind has really gotten nice and concentrated. That, that's, that really matters at all and really makes a difference. The teaching on inconstancy comes within a larger context, and that's the whole question of why we're meditating to begin with. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for a solid, reliable foundation for our happiness. And when the mind gets concentrated, the first thing you want to look at is the things that would distract you from your concentration. And you realize how inconstant they are, how unreliable they are. If you're trying to base your happiness on those things, you'd be setting yourself up for a fall. This is why concentration is, mastery of concentration is said to go along with the overcoming of sensual passion. But we talked a little bit earlier about non-returners, how non-returners are the ones who've gotten to the point where they're no longer um, fettered by sensual passion, no longer fettered by irritation. There are other passages in the canon which talk about how non-returners have also thoroughly mastered concentration. The two go together. Sensory input is just not going to knock you off base. Because you compare the pleasure that comes from sensory input with the pleasure, the sense of ease that comes from the concentration, and it just doesn't, doesn't compare. Now, you may have some old habits to say, but I really like that. And then you look at it a little bit more carefully and you realize, oh, it's, it's not worth it. Not worth all the effort that goes into it. Because one of the things you learn in the course of meditation is that pleasure doesn't come for free. There's a cost. There's got to be effort put in there one way or the other. And the question is, is the effort worth it? When you can see the effort that goes into trying to develop a sense of happiness based on inconstant things, you think, enough. No, I'd much rather go for something that's more solid, more reliable. Um, to put it in really crass terms, it gives a better return on my income, on my, <laughs> my investment. You're investing all this effort in happiness, and many times, what do you have to show for it? Not much. So this focus, focusing on the theme of inconstancy, first you focus it on things outside of your state of concentration. When you've taken care of all of that, and the only attachment that remains is your state of concentration, the sense of ease, rapture, equanimity, well-being that comes with the concentration. Okay, then you turn it on the concentration itself. So this wonderful mind state that I've been developing here that's so calm and clear and, and, and steady. Is it really steady? 
And the more carefully you watch it, you realize that it's not. Even this is fabricated. Even this can't totally be depended on. When you see that, then the mind moves on to the next step theme, which is you train yourself, I would breathe in, focusing on dispassion. Um, the word dispassion, viraga, literally means fading. Like your, your desire for it begins to fade. And again, instead of getting caught up in aversion about the thing, you watch simply that you don't really want to invo- get involved in that particular process. When we use the word clinging and, and holding on and grasping, you know, the image is basically of a hand, right? That holds on to things. But when you think, realize that the things that you're holding on to are all activities, they're all fabrications, they're all things that are put together. It's not so much that you're grasping on something, but it's an activity that you've been repeatedly doing over and over and over again. It's your knee-jerk reaction. Sharon Salzberg tells a story about this woman she knew who got in a small automobile accident. And before calling the police, she went into a nearby store and bought some lingerie. <laughs> your immediate, in some people's immediate reaction, you know, you're, you're not feeling right, you do what you, you know, is instinctively your first knee-jerk reaction for making yourself feel good. <laughs> so she went and she bought a little lingerie and then she called the police <laughs> to put herself in the right mood. And we all have these, these patterns of behavior which sometimes make sense and a lot of times make no sense at all. Can I tell the story about the goose again? How many of you here were the other day when I told the story of the goose? Not too many people. Um, Conrad Lawrence, a famous biologist, raised a goose one time. Started out the the goose, it was when it was a little gosling, his mother died. And so immediately, of course, the gosling fastened on Conrad Lawrence as his mother. And everywhere Conrad Lawrence went around the house, the little gosling would follow him around. And he kept the gosling outside all during the spring and summer. Then finally, towards the end of summer, as it was getting into autumn, and the gosling was turning into a goose, he realized he was going to have to bring it inside. And so one night, for its dinner, instead of feeding it outside, he opened the door and walked into his, his house. And the goose, of course, followed him in. Now, this was the first time the goose had ever been inside. and immediately freaked out and saw at the end of the hall a large window. And halfway down the hall was a stairway that went up to Conrad Lawrence's apartment. <clears throat> and so Conrad Lawrence was going up the stairs, but the goose wasn't interested about the stairs. It wanted to get out, so it went straight for the window. Got to the window, realized it couldn't get out. In the meantime, it saw Conrad Lawrence, so it turned around and followed him up the stairs. The next day, goose came into the house, went to the window, came back, went up the stairs. <laughs> and every day, come in the house, you go to the window, back up, go up the stairs. Although the trip to the window over time became shorter and shorter until it finally got so that he would go to that side of the stairway, shake his foot at the window, (laughs) head up the stairs. Well, one day, Conrad Lawrence came home late and the goose was hungry. And so Conrad Lawrence opens the door and the goose immediately goes running up the stairs. (laughs) Stops about halfway, shivers all over, goes down the bottom of the stairs, walks up to the window, comes back, goes up the stairs. <laughs> so we have all these patterns of behavior. As I said the other night, when you have this feel, you've had this need for your own personal little rituals, it's your inner goose speaking. So what we're learning dispassion here for is not so much dispassion for things, it's dispassion for ways of behavior. The effort that we put into trying to find happiness, and after a while it just begins, doesn't seem worth it anymore. So it's not that you feel aversion for something, you're going to throw it away. It's simply an activity you see and realize it doesn't produce anything worth the effort that went into it, and so you stop. That's the next one. You breathe in, focusing, and breathe out, focusing on cessation. Yes. Um, um, assuming that I'm doing this in a concentrated state, you know, there's not like a whole lot of things, a lot of, a lot of thoughts happening in particular. You know, mm-hmm. and I can see um, in constancy, it's pretty easy to see how to work with. Mm-hmm. But I can't quite get a sense of how to go to dispassion. Yeah. Okay. What you have to do is notice what are you doing to create that inconstancy. 
It's not like you're a passive viewer watching the TV show of inconstancy that's being produced for you. It's more like an interactive game where you're actually deciding what the characters are going to do, you know, how much beauty, how much brains, how much whatever. You're putting it in, an effort into this, trying to figure it out. And after a while you begin to realize it's not just passive stuff happening, it's more you have, an, you have a role pl- to play in that. The question is, okay, what are you doing that's creating this inconstancy in your state of concentration? There's a wobbling of the mind, there's an unsteadiness in the mind. And this is, we're talking about you know, when the mind has gotten well-tamed. But even if it's well-tamed and it's well-trained and it's good at the concentration, it's impossible to st- make a totally you know, solid, constant state of concentration. There's always going to be a little bit of wobble. Now, sometimes it may take days for you to see this, especially when you're getting into a especially strong state of concentration and you're new to it. It's like going into a very, very bright room. Your eyes haven't adjusted yet. Everything, everything seems white. But then as, after a while, you begin to get used to the room and your eyes begin to adjust and you begin to see, oh yeah, there really is furniture, there really are things in the room, aside from the bright white light. And the same way, if you settle into a state of concentration, the first thing you notice about it is how much relief you feel from getting into this deeper stage of concentration, more solid, more secure, more expansive. But then after a while, as you stay with it, and this is why when you teach jhana, you can't have people jumping through jhana hoops. They've got to learn how to stay in that state for a long time to really get to know it before they move on. Because it's only when you stay with it a long time you understand, okay, what exactly am I doing that's creating this state? So it's not just that you're you're seeing in constant say, oh, isn't that interesting? It's like watching a TV show. It's, you know, isn't, that, isn't that strange? You have to realize, okay, you're putting an effort into this. And are you getting everything out that you want for your effort? And it's, again, it's, it's similar to that process we talked about earlier, where you see that the, the mind isn't quite as solid as it could be, and you want to see what it, what it is that you're doing that's not efficient. You finally get to the point that the only thing you could do, the only way you get things more steady or more solid, would be not to fabricate anything at all. And that's where the dispassion comes in. So, good question. And so when you finally get thoroughly dispassionate toward that particular activity, then you stop doing it. That's the cessation. Focusing on cessation. That's step number 15. And as you notice, through all of these, especially since step um, step number nine, you've developed this quality within your mind of being able to observe your own mind. It's like you have this separate persona in there as the observer, the watcher. And if you, when you're working on number fifteen, you find yourself in the cessation. It, it's it. It's a process not of one thing ceasing, it's a whole series of things ceasing. But they get closer and closer and closer to the very core of intention, which is this basic drive of what next, what next, what next. The knowledge, you get more and more sensitive to the fact that every, every present moment requires your input um, to shape it in, in one way, in any one way. And you finally get to realize, okay, even that is a disturbance, and you'd like to let go of that. That's the final thing that ceases. And then what's left is this position of the observer. You finally have to relinquish that as well. That too is a construct. That the observer that you've been holding on to as the sort of the still, the still eye in the storm, or even if it's not a storm, just the very still part of the mind that's watching the rest of the mind. You finally have to relinquish that as well. That's the, that's the final sort of intention that you drop as a meditator. So what you're doing here is you, when you're testing to see are, once the mind is thoroughly concentrated, okay, is it... First you look for the things outside and you see that they're not constant and you become dispassionate for those and you stop getting involved in those and you relinquish any interest in those. And then you have to turn around and do the same thing for your own state of concentration. So you see that it too is inconstant 
you develop a certain amount of dispassion. You just go, enough of this stuff. I want something that's better. And in the other passages, the Buddha talks about inclining the mind to the deathless. And the only thing that would, at that point, that would hold any appeal for you would be something that was totally free from change, totally free from conditions. You allow even the state of concentration to cease. You relinquish even the observer that's watching that. And that's when you attain release. Any questions? <laughs> it's a little bit much for right after lunch, but <laughs> yes, we're here. Yes. Um, like Noah said, uh, in, in all these, uh, in all these verses, the steps. In all these steps, uh, it starts with he trains himself, and then it starts, and then it. It's like a quote. I will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this like a, an affirmation, or is this what you say while you're you're actually trying it's, to? It's uh, an intention. You set that intention up in the mind. Okay. And I noticed that, um, uh, like, there's four sets of mm, four. Each, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first one uh, sets the um, the first set sets the um, the physical things that you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Now, in breathing, does it matter whether you breathe through your nose or your mouth? Because sometimes I have, you know, um, my nose gets stuck. Because, mm-hmm. you know. If you can't breathe through your nose, then you can breathe through your mouth. Okay. It's even better if you can breathe through your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how would I know? Well, it, it's possible. Okay. So, the second set, what, how would you characterize that set? It's funny that you're asking because the next section deals with this directly. You're dealing with body, your body. The first set is dealing with body. The second set is dealing with feelings. Third set is dealing with mind. And then the fourth set is dealing with what they call dhammas or metal qualities, i.e., the four foundations of mindfulness, the four frames of reference. Yeah. If you let go of concentration, then do you just go back? You go to nothing? You go to. You, at that point, the only thing that you're holding on to is the concentration. And you've thoroughly you know, gotten yourself disillusioned with other kinds of activities. So at this point, when you let go, that's the only direction you could go, would be to the deathless. Now, for most of us, that's not what happens. It just requires a lot of effort to, one, get the mind in concentration. And then once it's there, you know, start you know, really look carefully at the other things that you could be running out to. Because it's so instinctive. As soon as we leave concentration, what's next, what's next, what's next? Got to get back to my life. And for those of us who, whose attitude is, you know, meditation is a nice thing to have as long as it fits nicely into what I want it to do with my life, that's the way it's always going to be. But if you're more open to the idea that this meditation might actually change my center of gravity, point me in a different direction. Then when you come back and look at the things you, you could go back to, then you start getting more disillusioned with them, more disenchanted with them, and more intent on developing the concentration. Now, when, when that sense of disillusionment gets strong enough that you, you, know, you deal with things outside only when you really have to, then, then the time comes that when you let go of the concentration, that's not where your mind heads, it heads in the other direction. Because in all these cases, as you notice, if he trains himself, he trains himself, or she trains herself, there's an element of intention. All states of concentration have an intention. And what you're trying to do is refine your awareness. Okay, this is the one thing that's standing between you and the deathless now, is just this intention. Prior to that, it was just lots of intentions all over the place. But once you've narrowed things down, this is one thing that I'd really like to do for the sake of happiness, for its own sake. And then when you finally get disillusioned with that, it's like the Buddha has you cornered. He's painted you into a corner. And the only way to get out is to fly. That's what it means. Question back here. Specifically on this thing about... Specifically on the issue of concentration, one of the reasons. 
Yeah. Specifically on concentration, you know, one of the reasons that I've just really committed to the idea for myself in meditation in terms of the four foundational mindfulness is kind of like through the body mm-hmm. and specifically through the body, through the breath, because the breath well has always been the focus of my attention, my mm-hmm. primary object of you know, meditation. But what the, 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 I'm kind of like, uh, for the first time in, in, in recent months, this whole business about okay, you're meditating and now you're not. Mm-hmm. It has always been very hard for me to like meditate and then <laughs> remember it 15 minutes after I've, I've, after I've stopped doing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. What I have noticed with reference to the breath is something that I didn't intentionally set out to have happen. But there did come to be in recent months such a level of concentration that it kind of like seemed to begin to have its own momentum. The breath seemed to have its own momentum. I seemed to be able to stay with that without even trying to. It just happened when I came out of meditation so that my life could go on. Whatever I was going to be doing, I was doing it, but I'd be aware even a couple of hours later that, you know, <laughs> without thinking about it each step of the way, I'm right. I really am with the breath. And I would then rec- retrospectively realize, well, you know, I'm in some of these same situations that caused stress before, and I don't feel any as a result of having done that. I just with reference to how to, where to go from here with reference to that, what would you do with it at this point, which you're kind of like beyond being aware of what might be an inroad into something, would you would you meditate more? Would you consciously increase the time you were doing that? Or would you be more intentional with reference to the time when you're not in meditation in terms of being mindful of that? Both. Because I haven't done either of these things yet. Mm-hmm. I would do both. I'm sorry? I would do both. Both increase the amount of time you meditate and also be more conscious of maintaining the, your center of the breath throughout the rest of the day. This is possible, <laughs> uh, you know, because I've not known anybody that says, well, they can always just... I've always known I've had access to it, but it's like I have to remind myself to have, ac- have access to it, and I mm-hmm. would only do that usually if there was something that was bothersome. Mm-hmm. So you would, you would just adopt it as a practice. Try to adopt it as your basic reference. stance, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, it sounds like you're adding one more thing to juggle in the course of the day, but we're not. We're giving you a foundation from which to do your juggling of your daily activities. But just try to be conscious of keeping the breath comfortable because the more comfortable the breath is, the easier it is to stay. And this is probably one of the reasons why you find your mind averting to it more and more often because it's just a nicer place to be. It knows it can go there. And it's had that experience. Now what you want to do is maximize the benefit you can get from that by keeping it comfortable, by keeping it still. And then noticing the different ways the mind might get knocked off either from external stimuli or from other thoughts welling up in the mind that might start flowing out. Because what you find is that even as you have that state of being solid, there are going to be lapses still in the course of the day. And the lapses really tell you the most interesting things about your mind. How does the mind lapse? The investigation thing, the kind of what caused this, what do I think, you know, And then otherwise, when you don't have enough free time to do the investigation, still this is a good place to be. As you said, when negative things are coming up, you've got a solid foundation. And you can sit through layperson's hell, i.e. meetings, and just kind of be blissing out. Everybody else is doing all their meeting stuff, but you can be blissing out on the breath. Any situation. And notice what the, the dif- where, the, where the difficulties are when it's hard to stay with the breath. What pulls you out? And then this process of the mind pulling out, it, you begin to notice more, more, more often that it's there's kind of a blanking out for a second and then you're someplace else. There's a, and there's also almost a physical sense of energy flowing out. And you want to catch that. You can see the energy flow, but you're watching it. You're in a much better position. You're in the choice to go, you have the choice to go or not. It's interesting what you said about kind of like the tension going out because the experience of you know, staying with the breath, even when you're not necessarily totally aware of it at any given moment, but then realizing sporadically that, hey, you're still with this, is that it's a sen- there's a sense of taking something in. Mm-hmm. Whereas, of course, when you get you get distracted about something and something frustrating happens, I mean, it's all, all of the energy is dissipating. It right. is going okay. out. And 
you're losing that foundation at that point. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay. Because and what's what you really have to watch for is there's that moment of blanking out when you're here and all of a sudden you're out there. And why does the mind do this? I mean, it's it's a habit that the mind has of kind of it's like on a play when they when they want to change scenery. They don't let you see them, you know, remove the old scenery and put the new scenery in because that would destroy the illusion. And they put down this curtain, bring it up, and you're, whole, you're in a whole new place. And what you want to see is all, all the way through those machinations of what the mind does to go through to change its frame of reference and head out. And you see that there's a lot of self-deception right there. There was a science fiction story I heard. Of. Was I talking about this the other night? About the where was I talking about this? Oh, someplace else. Um, science fiction story I read one time in Thailand. You know, English books were very rare in Thailand, and every now and then someone would leave a book at the monastery, intentionally or not, I don't know, but I'd find it. And I would devour anything. Um, and one was a book of science fiction stories, and the, the reason I keep remembering it nowadays was it had a beautiful metaphor for the mind. It had a spaceship which, instead of using fuel, would change its frame of reference. If its frame of reference were Earth, it would just sit right here. If its frame of reference were the Sun, all of a sudden it would go off in the other direction from the Earth's moment. If its frame of reference were the center of the galaxy, it would be way out there really fast. And uh, <clears throat> the whole story revolved around the fact that when the ship changed its frame of reference, everybody in it would pass out for a while. <laughs> and then gradually come to. And this is the way the mind is. When we're ready to change our frame of reference, we pass out for a second, then we're gone. And when you're with the breath and you can begin to see the movements of the mind, you catch that tendency. And you say, I don't have to pass out anymore. I don't have to lie to myself. I know I'm changing my frame of reference and I have a reason. And this way you help get over a lot of the mind's own delusion, its tendency to deceive itself. Question over here. Where's the mic? There's another mic. That disappearing while you're changing your frame of reference, would you call that the bhavanga? It, I mean, Abhidhamma would call that going back to the bhavanga state. In the Abhidhamma, I think they probably do, but in, in the, that, the word bhavanga doesn't exist in the Pali Canon. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I mean, it's just in the commentaries. Though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, but that's sort of the corollary of, I mean, it, for those of us who've heard about these commentaries, would you say that that's what you're. It's a similar. Perhaps thing it would be, but it, there's also an element of forgetting. That goes into that. Not enough averting to the bhavanga involves preventing. Just the drop out of energy. So if you can keep your energy up somehow, you won't fall asleep in between those. Yeah, that's that's one way of looking at it. Yes, sure. Oh, okay. Um, I, I could just add one other sort of piece of my experience. In the past, I had an anoxic brain injury, and I recovered as I recovered from it my sense of thinking was very slow and um, my uh, the sense of space between thoughts was very great mm-hmm. and um, and the uh, the uh, self-making mechanism that it took with all those thoughts being generated was very uh, almost disabled mm-hmm. almost like it wasn't able to whip up enough energy to make me think about who I was or what was going on or what to do next or anything. Mm-hmm. And um, through the healing process over the years now, it's been about four years, I've actually begun to watch that whole process become more vivid. Mm-hmm. It's like parts of my mind are speeding up again mm-hmm. and I'm starting to catch on to, oh yeah, that's, I'm doing it again. doing it again. Mm-hmm. And when I go back into later um, into the states of jhana that I was able to do before I had the cardiac arrest they they offer me great peace much more than they did before the arrest Mm -hmm. because I feel like I now sense what's going on better than what I did before Mm -hmm. but um, I wouldn't recommend anybody getting this (laughs) experience (laughs) because it was really quite frightening Mm -hmm. and um, I still feel like I'm healing from it Mm -hmm. But, uh, but I do agree with what you said about what the teachings suggest on this, me- on this uh, information because mm-hmm. I am aware of 
myself thinking, and I'm also sensing it. I'm not my thoughts. Mm-hmm. So. I know what I imagine would also help you see more clearly the amount of effort that goes into thinking. Yes. Yeah. And why you need rest. For most of us, it's, it's like a healthy person running around and doesn't really notice how much energy goes into that. And when you get sick, all of a sudden you just can't move. You have less energy to put in, and you realize, my gosh, I'm wasting a lot of energy on this activity. Now the question is, what's the, what's the payoff? Mm-hmm. And the Buddha says, look, if, there's, if the payoff isn't enough, why bother? I'm curious about the blanking out state. Mm-hmm. And could you speak a little bit more to that, to, to try and catch it before going off again? Okay, if one thing you want to notice when you're meditating is um, what we always do is the mind wanders off to come back and say, I'm not going to wander again, right? And then it wanders again. So know that when you bring it back and say, okay, it's going to wander again. Let's watch for the warning signs. What does it do before it wanders? And you begin to notice that there's the image I like to use is of an, of an inchworm at the edge of a leaf. It comes out to the edge of the leaf, and it's still one end is still on the leaf, but the other end is looking around for the next leaf. And as soon as the leaf comes, pop, it's gone. And you want to catch the mind when it's in this, <laughs> when it's in this state, <laughs> and just sort of see what are the warning signs. And it's going to be a little bit of boredom and a little bit of how about such. And it's almost as if the mind were trying to lie to itself about this decision-making process, about whether you should go or not. Like little kids in a schoolroom, as long as the teacher is in the schoolroom, the kids don't run around. And as soon as you can get the teacher's attention distracted, choop, they're out. So the mind actually tries to distract itself. It's the mind is like a committee. We talked about this before. It's, it's like the Chicago City Council. It's not just a nice study center or you know IMC committee where everybody is trying to be mindful and polite and everything. It's, it's like the Chicago City Council. They're trying to get away with things. <laughs> and what you're trying to do as a meditator is you're trying to get a really good reporter in there to watch what's happening. And when the reporters are in the city council room, they all behave themselves and they're all nice. And of course, they'll try to divert the reporter's attention and then, you know, do their stuff. But as a, as a meditator, you want to become a better and better reporter, i.e. you don't let yourself get distracted. And one of the things, I'll, I'll just, just leave it as an image. Um, you know that old Zen story about the, the finger and the moon? You know, don't mistake the finger for the moon. This version of the story is, watch out for that finger. It's trying to distract your attention. It's trying to get you to look at the moon. Yeah. Look at the finger. But look for how the mind tries to distract its attention. And, and then how they, the, the rest of the committee heads off. Because many times the decision has been made to go before you blank out on a subliminal level. So you want to watch for that. You're on your way before you blank out. Right, watch for the warning signals. Okay, next section. Okay, now the Buddha has gone over the 16 steps. And so, notice what this, these 16 steps teach you about the word mindfulness. I mean, there's a lot going on, a lot of different steps, a lot of different intentions that you bring to the breath. It's not just, I, will, I am breathing in, I am breathing out. Notice, as someone else pointed out over here, the men upon over here, it's, it's in the future tense. Future tense is intention. I will do this. I will do that as I breathe in. I'll breathe in doing this. I'll breathe out doing that. So the mindfulness here is essentially 
essentially you've got this intention, then you try to keep it in mind each time you breathe. It's the keeping in mind that is the mindfulness. And the reason we're working on intention here is, as I said earlier, is intention is the big element in shaping your experience. So you want to get very clear on how it does this. And the only way you can get clear is by being very conscious about doing the process. And here he's giving you guidance on how, what kind of intentions to set up in your mind, what kind of intentions to keep in mind in order to observe what's going to happen as a result. And you find that the mind gets to greater and greater and greater stages of calm and peace. And finally, it will get to the point where you, ha- you can ultimately relinquish any kind of intention at all. And that's as far as intention can take you. That's as far as mindfulness can take you. But as we'll find out, that in the process of doing this, it takes you pretty far. Okay. Okay, first, it fulfills all form of, form of frames of reference, all the satipatthana. Frames of reference, as I said earlier, is not quite the ideal translation for the term satipatthana, because satipatthana is not just the frame, it's also the process of establishing a frame of reference as well. There are four, and we go through all four of them. Number one, on whatever occasion you're breathing in long, discerning, I am breathing in long, breathing out long, discerning, I'm breathing out long. And all through all the four of those steps. Okay, Look down at the kind of just below the middle of that paragraph. On the occasion you're doing those first four steps, you remain focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. Okay. That sentence there is a definition of the satipatthana, the establishing of mindfulness. I.e., you're focused on something, in this case the body, in and of itself. Now, in and of itself here means that you're not worried about your body in terms of how it looks to other people, or whether it's strong enough to do your work, or any way that it's going to relate to anything outside in the world. Other people, other things. You're simply concerned with what is this experience of having a body, in and of itself. That's your frame of reference. Now, as you're doing this, you're developing three mental qualities, ardency, alertness, and mindfulness. Let's take those in reverse order. Mindful is keeping in mind. In other words, you're keeping the idea of the body in and of itself in mind. Secondly, you're alert to what's going on, what the body's doing, what the mind is doing as it tries to relate to the body. And the final one is ardency. You're ardent. You really keep at it. The commentary explains ardency in terms of all four, what they call the right exertions, or the four forms of right effort. In other words, if you see anything that's unskillful going on in the mind, or the potential for anything unskillful, one, you try to prevent it from arising. If something unskillful already has arisen in the mind, then you try to abandon it. If something skillful, then you try to give rise to skillful qualities in the mind, and you try to continue them once they've they've arisen. So again, you're not just sitting there watching things coming and going. This quality of ardency means that you're beginning to look at things in terms of skillful and unskillful, trying to promote what's skillful and trying to undercut what is unskillful. And then finally, to maintain that frame of reference of the body in and of itself, you you try to put aside any greed or distress with reference to the world i.e. the outside world, the world that would pull you away from this frame of reference. Now, all of that in and of itself, that's what, that's what a satipatthana is. It's that whole phrase. So it involves concentration. It revol- the concentration, you stay focused on the body. It requires effort. It requires discernment, alertness, mindfulness. A lot of qualities are brought into play here. So it's not just mindfulness, pure and simple. It's a, it's a cluster of qualities that are working centered on this experience of the body in and of itself. So while you're doing those first four stages, being aware of the breath, being long or short, training yourself to breathe in and out, sensitive to the entire body, and training yourself to breathe in and out, calming the process of bodily fabrication, okay, and that you're with the body in and of itself, doing all those things. You're fulfilling the definition of satipatthana. And then the, monk, the Buddha goes on to say, I tell you, monks, that this, the in and out breath, is classed as a body among bodies. 
In other words, when you're staying with the breath, you're staying with the body. Pure and simple. And as we go through this, you begin to realize that the mind focused on the breath, actually you could focus on any of the four frames of reference relationship to the breath. There's the feeling that arises with being with the breath. There's the mind state that's right there with the breath. And then there are mental qualities that you bring to the breath. So when you go from one frame of reference to the next, you don't really leave the breath. You just look at a different aspect of the mind with the breath. Any questions on that first frame of reference? Should we go through all four? And then You've got lots of bodies. You've got your physical body. You've got your, what they call your mind-made body, which in, in Western, Western discussions they call it your astral body. But the, the, the descriptions in the Pali Canon fit the whole of the idea of, a, of an astral body. That you can pull it out of the physical body and it can go here and go there and come back in. And sometimes when it comes back in, it doesn't fit and you're in really bad shape. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of your bodies. The breath body, which is your energy body, that's another body. So as long as you're with any of these bodies, you're with a body in and of itself. That's how it qualifies. Number two. On whatever occasion you train yourself breathing in and out sensitive to rapture, sensitive to pleasure, sensitive to mental fabrication, or common mental fabrication. Okay, in that case, you remain focused on feelings in and of themselves. Ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. Because remember, what, is, what do mental fabrications cover? It covers feelings and perceptions. So you've got feelings there, you've got the feeling of rapture, you've got the feeling of ease or pleasure. So in this sense, being with these feelings would count as fulfilling that second frame of reference, the second foundation of mindfulness. But the Buddha has a very interesting explanation of the connection here. He says, I tell you, monks, this is that last sentence in paragraph number two, that this careful attention to in and out breaths is classified, is classed as a feeling among feelings. This is the only place in the canon I've ever seen attention classed as a feeling. And if you'd ask me to explain that, I'd say, I'm really kind of confused. <laughs> I don't know how I would explain that. Except that the important point is that when you're focusing on feelings as your frame of reference, you're not supposed to leave the breath. You're still with the breath. Now you will find some places where they tell you, okay, now that you've done the body, drop the body and just go with feelings as your focus. That is a very unstable focus. You can think of it as you're building a, a building and you're standing on the scaffold and a cloud comes along and the cloud looks nice so you jump on the cloud and go right through. Because you want the feeling, the feeling as it is based on the breath. Now one way of explaining, explaining this idea of defining attention as a kind of feeling is that while you're with the breath you've got a foundation for the feeling, a definite frame of reference for the feelings that you want to keep constant. And as you're keeping careful attention to the breath, that means that you're not losing your, you're losing your foundation. Paragraph number three, on whatever occasion you're training yourself to breathe in and out, sensitive to the mind, satisfying the mind, steadying the mind, and releasing the mind, and on that occasion, you're focused on the mind in and of itself. Alert and alert and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. That's pretty obvious. All these things are mind, mind, mind. But then the Buddha goes on to say why he says this. I don't say that there is mindfulness of in and out breathing and one of lapsed mindfulness and no alertness. So this ability to stay with the mind in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, fulfills that quality of being ardent, alert, and mindful with reference to the mind. 
Again, you're not looking at the mind as a separate thing. You're looking at the mind as it's focused on the breath. It's like being a a wildlife photographer. (coughs) And you go out into the savannah and you want to take pictures of all all the animals in the savannah. Now, do you wander around all the savannah? You go to the waterhole. You stay at that one spot and all the, all the animals in the course of the day are going to have to come to the waterhole. In the same way, when you want to look at your mind, the best way to do it is focus your mind on the breath and you've got it. It's right there. So with each of these frames of reference, you never really leave the breath. You stay right with the breath. It's simply that you begin to focus your awareness on a different aspect of the relationship. Okay, then finally, on whatever occasion you breathe in and out, training yourself to breathe in and out, focused on inconstancy, dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment. On that, you are focused on mental qualities in and of themselves, because that's what these mental qualities are. Inconstancy, dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment. And then the Buddha goes on to explain this. One who sees with discernment the abandoning of greed and distress is one who watches carefully with equanimity. Okay, watching carefully is, is part of being mindful and alert. Being equanimous helps keep your mindfulness clear, the perception of clear. And noticing here he's talking not, not just about putting aside greed and distress, it's actually abandoning greed and distress. This is the point where it gets more radical. The word putting aside can also be tr- translated as subduing, I mean, there's a tendency, you want to go and get involved in the issues of the world, but you calm it down, you keep, it, keep, it on, keep the lid on it. But in the last step, you're actually abandoning it. Okay, No more greed and distress for the world. You've had enough. And at that point, when you're watching that happening, you're watching on with equanimity these events that are happening in the mind, which is why you were that fourth mental quality, the fourth frame of reference there. You know, any questions on any of those frames of reference? Question here. The, um, we, we, you write in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Is that often translated as on the mind, in the mind, on the body, right. in the mm-hmm. body? Mm-hmm. Is there some reason why you chose the internet? I mean, the internet itself is so much clearer. It's much clearer, mind. yeah. I mean, it's basically a description of what's going on. And, um, it seems to be the best, most idiomatic way of saying that. I mean, literally, the phrase in the Pali says, body in the body. But there are other places where you see it. It's, when, you, when you put something in that, what they call the locative case in the, in the noun, the body in the body, means in reference to the body. So the body in reference to the body, the reference body in and of itself. Question over here. Um, I understand that when we focus on the mind, it's the state that the mind is in when it's focusing on the breath. I like that analogy with the water bowl. I've heard it many times and I, I got something different from the way you said it then. And, and what it brought up for me is. Is your mic on? Is this not on? Not on, no. Now it's on. Yes. Okay. Got it. So. Um, Going back to the waterhole, um, mm-hmm. if you sit at the waterhole and watch the animals, then I will always see animals that are thirsty coming to the waterhole. Mm-hmm. How can I feel certain that I don't need to see animals in some other state in order to really photograph them properly? You know it is the nature of all animals to be thirsty. <laughs> Except for kangaroo rats. <laughs> But they're in the desert, and you're in the savannah. So. <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is, um, only seeing the mind in the state when it's focused on the breath, mm-hmm. is that sufficient to learn everything about the mind and release it? Okay, yes. I know the answer is yes, but I'm not convinced. The answer is why, okay. okay. One is, you know the nature of the mind is to search for happiness and you're providing it with happiness. You're providing it with a sense of pleasure that's, you know, that goes really, really deep, a lot deeper than any other kind of pleasure. 
Secondly, there's the, the Buddhist principle of causality. We, we could talk for a couple hours on this one. Essentially, it's, it's chaos theory. It, if you look at a parallel with Western theories on causality, the closest thing you have is chaos theory. And one of the principles of chaos theory is something that's called scale invariance, where if you look at something on a small scale, you see the same things as you look on a large scale. You look at the mind as it is in the present moment, and you understand the mind as it moves on larger scales, because it's the same process. So, and finally, the breath is really good because it's your one guarantee that you really are in the present moment. You can't watch a past breath. You can't watch a future breath. This is the only breath you can watch. And so when you've got the mind with the breath, you know you've got the mind here in the present moment. Focused on you. And the thing is, you know, when you're, when you're sitting at the water hall, you're not only seeing the, the animals lapping up the water. You're seeing animals as they're thirsty. You see animals as their thirst has been quenched. And as they come and they go. But they've got to come here before they come and go. But it's that, it's that principle of scale invariance, which is the, sort of the crux of the matter. If that weren't operating, there would be no meditative technique that would ever show you the mind as a whole. Simply having, you could have, because you'd have to observe the mind in the past, you'd have to observe the mind in the future, and you can't do that. Now the thing is, because causality works the way it does, everything you need to know about the mind is happening right here. So just give the mind something that will bring it right here, and then you can watch it. Okay. Question over here. Probably Mike. Yeah. The mic is not on. How's that? Yeah. Okay. Um, on number four, I've never felt greed when I was uh, meditating. I mean, or aversion when I was meditating. Mm -hmm. uh, but I feel that as I transact, transact life, as mm -hmm. I go through life, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as I eat, as I meet people, you know. So, um, is this frame of reference a um, meant only while you're meditating or outside of meditation. Try to maintain it outside of meditation too and see what happens. Because we were talking earlier about trying to stay with the breath all throughout the day. Begin to notice when your greed arises, when your distress arises, when you've lost... If, you, if you're dealing with the world, say, keeping the body as your frame of reference, that means whatever event comes up, your first reaction is, how is this affecting the body? You don't want to lose sight of the body as your point of reference as your grounding. And then if you find that greed comes up, notice what greed does to the body. Are these four frame of references um, meant to be, you know, like you, you graduate from, say, the first to the fourth? Yeah, first to the fourth. It's not necessary. It's not okay. necessary. Because as the Buddha will point out in the next section, you can take any one of the four and pursue it and it will take you all the way to awakening. The other advantage of going through life taking the body as your frame of reference is it really changes your, your attitude towards the stuff you can get from the world. You know, if you find that you can sit here and just breathe and be happy, why bother with all that other garbage out there? And that makes it a lot easier to, you know, to get rid of greed and not to be so upset about what's happening in the world. One of, the, one of the famous Ajahns in Thailand, before he died, told his students, and his students were about my age, he said, I'm not going to see World War III, but you will. So get ready. And where can you get ready? Well, just make the body your frame of reference. Okay. The world is a crazy place, and it's going to go through some craziness, but as long as you have your frame of reference solid, you're in a much better position to, to negotiate the craziness. That's an advantage. There's a question here.
I just want to go back to that business about careful attention to in and out of breaths uh, being classified as a, as a feeling among feelings. Mm-hmm. I have a problem distinguishing between like feelings and sensations because mm-hmm. my understanding is that, that when he says feelings, he means whether something is pleasant, unpleasant, or Normally. neutral. Normally, you're not yes. supposed to go further beyond. You're not supposed to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whereas when, when you're talking about uh, mental factors, uh, depression, depression, for instance, mm-hmm. you might think depression, but then that's what, that what, that's what leads you to looking at sensations mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe triggered the thought that you're depressed. You don't know which came first, the chicken or the eggs, or at I least think. I don't, mm-hmm. much of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of like I'm concerned about what I'm supposed to do with reference to careful attention regarding this is a feeling among feelings and I want to know what he means by feeling here. If it's sensation, that is, that, I don't see the difference between a sensation yeah. and a feeling. Yeah, that, that is one of the mysteries of that passage and I've never seen it adequately explained. The important point is that if you just do those four things, learn how to breathe in and out, sensitive to rapture, breathe in and out, sensitive pleasure, start noticing the, the coming and going of feelings and perceptions and then calming those down, You've taken care of feeling as a frame of reference. You're established in feeling as a frame of reference. In this case, would the feeling, uh, the thought, the word uh, depression be a perception as opposed to whatever I find in the body vis-a-vis sensation? Right. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to stay with with precisely the the pleasant or painful feelings that surround the, the depression. Rather anger or whatever. Whatever the state of mind is, yeah. Thank you. That's that much is helpful. Okay, fine. Question over here. Where's the traveling mic on this side of the room? I was I'm just confused between three and four, the mind mm-hmm. and mental qualities. Could you speak more about um, to get back to that analogy, and this is one of the issues, there's lots of different theories about the distinction between the two. My favorite way of looking at it is, again, thinking of the mind as a committee. Now, the committee can be either unanimous or you can start breaking it down into its individual members. You know, what the, what the committee does as a whole, as opposed to what the individual measures or members are doing at any one particular time. So, mind would be the whole committee, whereas mental qualities would be the individual members that you're trying to keep track of. Mm-hmm. Question here? Oops. I wonder if the Buddha ever talked about the subject of dream and how it relates to meditation and uh, I also heard rumor that Buddha doesn't dream. I wonder if you could speak about that. You're right, there's a rumor. Um, <laughs> he does talk about dreams he had before his awakening. He never talks about dreams after his awakening. Um, and he doesn't talk much about dreams with regard to meditation at all. Now, I know my own experience when I was in Thailand. You know, I'd, I'd occasionally have you know, very vivid dreams. And my, <clears throat> and my teacher would either be interested in the dream and we'd talk about it a little bit, or otherwise he'd just kind of look at me, and that was the end of that discussion. Um. <laughs> and what it comes down to is that sometimes dreams can be prophetic. Or sometimes they can tell you something about what's going on inside. Or sometimes they can actually tell you about events someplace else. But that's pretty rare and pretty undependable. So you can't take too much, you can place too much stock. I, when I was over there one time, I got a letter from my father that he was going to get remarried. And that night I had a dream that this rat had gotten in the house. <laughs> <laughs> eating up the draperies <laughs> and more symbolically was also eating up the, the bed cover on my parents' bed. Um, 
I woke up the next morning and said, I don't have to tell him about this dream. I know. I <laughs> hope my stepmother doesn't listen to this on the, on the web. Okay. Okay. No, you had a question. Maybe I've just read this sentence now too many times, but um, this he who sees with discernment the abandoning of greed and distress is one who watches carefully with equanimity. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's something extra going on there. Mm-hmm. So because we've been we've been um, abandoning greed and distress in all the first three. Mm-hmm. So we've been putting it aside. We haven't been abandoning it. Oh, Different okay. verb. I'm putting it aside, right? You're abandoning it's bahana. So then we put it then we put it aside and then we see with discernment. Mm-hmm. So what so that means we're seeing with discernment the effect of putting it aside? And it's, that's the things about the, the, the phrase actually is having seen with discernment. Okay. In other words, the discernment here is seeing the inconstancy, the dispassion, the sensation, the relinquishment. Okay. Then the next step is one who watches carefully with equanimity. Because the discernment requires that you watch even these even these events, even the dispassion, the sensation, you cannot get worked up about the fact, mm-hmm. hey, I'm finally letting go. Mm-hmm. That gets me. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. And so it's equi- watching the entire array of mental qualities mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. equanimity, even right. the letting go of it, even the right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and mean, as we all know, that gets, that's one of the big things that gets in the way. It looks like it's getting good. It's, hey, it's getting good, and it stops getting good. <laughs> so, as, so as we make this attempt to get fully concentrated, mm-hmm. dislocations happen all the time, and when you're on retreat, the first thing the teachers point out is a lot of people who are there is because there's some suffering going on, mm-hmm. unskillful choices, whatever it is. And I always think of uh, uh, John Lennon saying, um, "Life happens when you're busy making other plans." Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So you're making these plans to sit, get fully concentrated, but invariably you're going to have dislocations in, in mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a, a divorce that's painful at first and then it leads you to a, a, a wonderful relationship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or it's a person who has a cardiac arrest and is able to see uh, more uh, freshly now mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. into her experience. Or a friend of mine who was in a mudslide the um, three hundred thousand dollars in damage. Mm-hmm. First, the insurance wasn't going to pay. Mm-hmm. Then, the insurance is going to pay. But she ultimately moves, and the new landlord is a wonderful um, role model for her daughter. Teaches her the violin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, lastly, some political instability that leaves lets someone is forces someone out of state, out of the country. Mm-hmm. But then they have a new family and that becomes your neighbor. Mm -hmm. So my point is that it it seems to me that dislocations are a wonderful vehicle for new insights Mm -hmm. in many respects more than trying to sit and get the insights that we try to do. Mm -hmm. And yet we're we're attempting to uh, remedy suffering. I mean, that's one of the, mm-hmm. the focuses of this. Yet it's the very suffering many times that leads us to a place of bliss and joy. Okay, you've got several things going there. Um, sometimes that bliss and joy can turn into something else. Um, secondly, the, you have to be in the right position in order to view all these changes with enough equanimity so you can really negotiate them. So you don't get blown away. I.e. the mudslide and the insurance people say they're not going to pay. You don't commit suicide at that point. You've got enough mental strength to sort of carry through until things turn 
to be something positive. Now, to get that kind of mental strength, some people seem to be born with it. But even people with this sort of inborn mental strength, there are incidents in life that can really knock them, knock them for a loop. Whereas the meditation helps give you this foundation that you realize, okay, even if the world goes crazy, I've still got the body in and of itself, I've still got feelings, etc., in and of themselves. I can stay here and make this my home. And once your happiness is not dependent on things out there, then you can start learning interesting lessons about the process of change. One. Two, we talked earlier about this process of scale invariance, which, you know, the things that happen on the small scale are the same thing that happen on the large scale, and vice versa. And the Buddha says you can take both as opportunities for insight. When you can look at the process in the mind, the lessons you learn from watching the process in the mind help you negotiate outside a lot better. If you're good at negotiating outside, it helps you deal with issues that come up inside on the small on the small scale. So everything is a, is a potential opportunity for insight. Just you've got to get the mind in the right place, which is why the emphasis is on careful attention, being equanimous, being mindful and ardent and alert, because those are the qualities that will keep the mind in a position where it actually can learn from these ups and downs. Because I know a lot of people who've been through mudslides and earthquakes and tsunamis and all these other things, they don't come out with any, dis- any wisdom at all. Yeah. So, so basically, you're saying that this is a, tra- um, a training ground or to fortify the mind so right. that mm-hmm. not only can we see more clearly as we're sitting and doing this practice, but also to prepare us for those dislocations that may occur in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that we may not be able to be fully concentrated with when they happen, but we are aware of them and in time we're able to reflect back and say, uh-huh, this is... And it's, it's, well, the best useful. thing is if you can actually maintain that center throughout the incident. But if you can't, the kind of the wisdom you've learned can help, help you through. Like, like with any storm, there are times when you just have to lay low. Okay, then when the storm is over, then you can come out. But in the meantime, you've got something to help you lay low, and there's a conviction, okay, this will have to pass. It's not going to last forever. Right, and in, although it seems like it's permanent, it ultimately you realize it's not. Right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, coming from Southern California, um, one of my most useful uh, metaphors for teaching meditation is the gym. <laughs> you go down to the gym and one, you can't say, I'm only going to go down there when I'm, you know, when I'm strong enough so I don't feel embarrassed in front of the other people. You've got to take whatever body you've got and take it down to the gym. Okay? When you start out to meditate, you start where you are. You know. Secondly, when you've gained strength in the gym, it's not only useful in the gym. You don't leave your, you know, your, your big, bigger body down in the locker room. You, know, you, you take it out with you and you use it in, in real life. Now, and, and as you keep, you know, if, you, if you keep fit in, in your day-to-day life, then it makes it easier to go down to the gym so you don't become a weekend warrior and break a leg. So it's, there are a lot of parallels. <laughs> <laughs>